Thanks, Michael. It is a, it's great to be together today. I always look forward to this. This is like the highlight of my week. My week just like motivates towards this day because I love, I think there's something about getting together with other men and wrestling through like key themes. And just by your presence, that says something about your commitment to want to grow, mature as a godly man. You know, in our culture, it doesn't press you towards that goal. And so you need other guys in your life. In fact, that's kind of going to be the big theme of today is the role that we play in each other's lives as brothers, as friends. And if you've been here since the beginning, you might, uh, you might remember that we said that there are, when it comes to this idea of being a man, a man is a leader, he's a brother, he's a lover, he's a warrior, he's, uh, he's noble. And today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about what it means to be a brother. And uh, my keynote thing just stopped on me again. All right, I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way. That's fine. Uh, what we're going to talk about is the, the, fifth, or the, the uh, second characteristic of a man. That's a brother. And what we defined that last week with is with a personal investment and a commitment to one another, a brother aids, he comforts, and he challenges for the good of both, is what we said. And, uh, and when a brother is checked out, we said he is an associate or he is a controller. So if, you, if, a, if a brother isn't doing what a brother ought to do, if he's just sort of ambivalent, if he's a kind of a pal of sorts, he's an associate. So he's not going to say what needs to be said. He's not going to do what needs to be done. He's not going to spend time with that other guy in his life. It's just going to sort of be whenever it's convenient. So he's an associate or... A brother can become intense, and that guy can show up at your house without invitation. He can have expectation. He can get in your face. He can confront you for things that he should be confronted for. And so a brother who gets out of hand can be in different extremes. And so we're not talking about the extremes today. We're going to talk about what right looks like, and we're going to do so with an exploration of the Scripture. And this topic is important. Let me just read some stats. I do not have a, I don't have a slide for this stat, but uh, here are the slides. This is, or this is the stats. This is 2018. Cigna, the health insurance company, did a research project culminating in the spring of last year. So this is fresh data. This isn't antique data. This is very fresh. They said that nearly half of all Americans, doesn't matter gender, nearly half of all Americans report sometimes or always feeling alone. So in this room, if that stat is true, half of us would say sometimes or all the time, I feel pretty isolated. They said two out of five Americans sometimes or always feel that their relationships are not meaningful. Now there's a bummer. If you have one, you have a relationship. 40% roughly of people say it's, it's actually not a meaningful relationship. It's just it's something. And, uh, and they feel that 40% feel isolated from others. One out of five people, 20%, report they rarely or never feel close to people. Isn't that crazy? One out of five. I say this, as I read this, some of us in this room are going, me, me, me. Yeah, that's me. Some of you, that's why you're here, is to kind of break down some of those barriers and have those connections. Americans who live with others, so this is kind of a good news if you have a family in your house. Americans who live with others, are just slightly less lonely than others, 43% compared to 46%. That's, that's, kind of, that's a sad stat right there. 
It's like, well, you are 3% more likely to feel like you have meaningful relationships if you have somebody living in your house. That's not. That's within margin of error kind of stats. Only half of Americans have meaningful interpersonal social interactions, such as having extended conversation with a friend, spending quality time with family on a daily basis. In today's generation, this is the uh, 18 to 22-year-old, is considered the loneliest generation and claims to be in the worst health. That's the crazy part. They claim to have worse health conditions and be lonely. This is why Cigna did it. So why would a health insurance company even look into issues around relationships and loneliness? Because they know that if somebody doesn't have, if you don't have a friend in your life, you are actually more likely to be unhealthy. Which means if you're going to choose a very unhealthy lifestyle, if you're going to start vaping, do it with friends. That's really what the, that's the, that's the takeaway right there, you know. If you're going to drink too much, drink too much with a lot of people. I'm not recommending that, just for the record. If you're listening to this on podcast, that was a joke. Uh, social media alone is not a predictor of loneliness. Respondents defined as uh, very heavy users of social media have a loneliness score of 43%. That's not very different than the general. In other words, and we probably know this in this room, you could have, like I have, I have a, because I've served a lot of different churches through the years, I have somewhere north of 3,000 Facebook friends, very dear to me, every last one of them. You know, uh, every day birthdays come up, you know, if you go on Facebook, I usually check it in the morning and there's the birthday and I'm like, I don't even know who that is. I, I don't know who that is. When did I know? Sometimes I'll click on people like, oh yeah, that's right. I remember them from 15 years ago. Now, that's not to knock them or the social connection. That's fine. It's just you could have a lot of friends or connections, and, and it could mean nothing. And so that's why today we're going to dive into six attributes of a brother. Six attributes. You want me to give you the phone back and see if it works again? Then you don't have to sit there, Brett. It's awful nice of you to sit there. but uh, and so I probably have to key into the thing, don't I? Don't mean to be so informal. But um, while, you, you know, while you're in there, feel free to hack into any of my stuff. It's, you got my phone. We're going to talk about six attributes of a brother, but we're going to do so through the lens of one chapter primarily in the Old Testament. It's 1 Samuel 20. And this is a chapter that highlights one of the greatest friendships in the history of the Scriptures. It's actually it's really descriptive of one of the tightest, most remarkable friendships. And it's a friendship between a prince and the kingdom and the husband of the princess. In other words, they're brothers-in-law. They have, they have a covenantal, legally binding relationship with one another. But what's crazy about their relationship is the prince, who would be normally like the next in line to the throne, his chief rival is his brother-in-law, who has no bloodline to the throne. It just so happens that everybody in the nation loves the brother-in-law. And normally under, you know, just circumstances we live in, we would consider that other guy a rival, wouldn't we? I mean, most of us work in some sort of multi-staff environment. Imagine a guy comes in, you're getting the job done, you feel good about it, you realize just a matter of time before promotion is in your future, and then some guy comes in, and he just does everything just enough better than you, and you realize he's a risk. Now, do you take that guy under your wing and go, I'm going to be, thanks, bro, you're awesome. Do you go, we're going to be best friends, this guy and I? You know, is that what, are you going to do, is that going to be the nature of the relationship? No. 
No, that guy's probably going to be a rival to you. But that's not Jonathan and that's not David. Instead, they find their lives intertwined and their hearts intertwined as men. So, we're going to look at the first attribute. And the first attribute of our brother is a brother is vulnerable with his friend. How many of you feel good about that word? <laughs> That's not a very manly word. You know, there's not. Uh, over the weekend, uh, I introduced my son to an action movie. I won't name it in case you judge me for watch, letting my 14-year-old watch a movie full of a lot of revenge of justice, as we call it in our house. Just for the record, if someone gets, you know, like goes on a rampage, as long as it's justified, that's a revenge of justice film, okay? It's not just some rando thing. It's revenge of justice. So I'm, I'm watching that with my son, and I'm, you know, vulnerability was not one of the characteristics of the hero of the film. Vulnerability is one of those characteristics as men is most of the time when we find a vulnerability, we cover that thing up. We armor up. We protect. We don't want to be vulnerable. And some of you are more mature and some of you are more godly, and you're like, I don't really have a problem with vulnerability. And that's good. That's very good, because in order to have a really good brother in your life, you're going to be vulnerable. Here's the story. It starts out, 1 Samuel 20, first couple verses. It says, Then David fled from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan. Because if you were here last week, you might remember there were some problems with Saul, who's the king. And Saul doesn't like David too much right now. And so he goes to Jonathan, and David says, what have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father? Why is he trying to kill me? And then Jonathan says, never, no, you're you're not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without letting me know. Why Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. And then David took an oath, and he says, your father knows very well that I have found favor, that we're very close friends. And he said to himself, Jonathan must not know, or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives, and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. And so then Jonathan says, whatever, whatever you want to do, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. Now, note the first line in the whole story. If you look at that first line, it says, David says to Jonathan, what have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father? Why is he trying to, why is he trying to kill me? And, and what he's doing there isn't, um, it, this is a real question. He's asking a genuine question. He's putting himself before his friend. He's inviting Jonathan to speak some truth. He's asking Jonathan to point out his failures and fault. Have, have I usurped Saul's authority? Have I inadvertently insulted him? Have I done something that's ticked Saul off? Or, or have, have I, have I uh, you know, curried favor amongst the generals? Does, does Saul feel threatened by me for legitimate grounds because I've been a jerk to him? Tell me. Now, that takes a lot of vulnerability, doesn't it? I, I don't know about you, but I, when, I, when I ask for evaluation of anything in my life, and I don't know about you, but usually when I say, hey, how was that? Really what almost all of us want to hear is, it was spellbinding. That was terrific. It was the most creative whatever you did. It was, oh, that was the best report ever given, right? If, you're in, if you've ever constructed anything, built anything, you want people to stand back and go, seriously, you haven't done this your whole life? This must be so. You, that's what we want. But to really vulnerably put yourself out there, to just go, seriously, tell me how it really is. David's not asking Jonathan what? 
just what has your, what's your dad told you. He's saying, what have you seen in me? What have you heard come out of me? I'm inviting you, Jonathan, to speak into that. And then Jonathan is incredibly vulnerable back to David. He says, tell me what to do. What do you want me to do? How can we get to the bottom of this? How can we solve this? That's, that's vulnerable. And that's not manly, at least by the way our culture views it. In fact, it's not manly in any culture. The Roman Empire, Roman Empire would not have valued vulnerability. None of the Caesars would have asked the Senate, how do you think I'm doing as Caesar? They might have asked that, and then if someone criticized, then they'd kill that person and their whole family and take everything they owned. That's not vulnerability. But vulnerability is one of the key attributes of a brother. Attribute number two, a brother is accountable to his friends. Now, this seems like, this is very connected. You'll find all these attributes are very interconnected. Accountability and vulnerability are so interlaced. You can't have accountability without vulnerability. But if you have vulnerability without accountability, if you just say, what do you think, but you don't do anything with it, then that just kind of ends it right there. But a true brother is accountable to his friend. So David and, David and Jonathan talk. They work out a plan together. They agree upon the plan. You can read. I'd encourage you to just read the whole chapter. We're just going to hit some of the highlights. And so, and so uh, this, is, uh, this is the kind of, um, he goes over the plan and he says something shocking. David says something shocking. As for you, he's speaking to Jonathan, show kindness to me, your servant. For you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. So, you know, Jonathan, you've made a covenant between you and me and the Lord. So be, be kind to me in this regard. This is the line that I read. I read it and I just thought, this is the craziest thing I've read. He said, if I am guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Now, I've had different accountability relationships in my life, but I've never given another guy permission just to take my life. You know, if I was out of line there, feel free, really, just kill me. I mean, it. just take me out. But that's, he's, he's being literal. David's literally putting his neck out there. And he's not afraid of the truth. And unfortunately, accountability gets overused many times. And so when we say accountability, it sort of becomes bro network, cover for one another. I'm accountable to that guy. That guy's accountable to me. But nobody's vulnerable with each other. So nobody really knows what's going on. So there's no genuine accountability. So it's like, I've been in a lot of accountability. I was in an accountability group. I am not making this up. I was in an accountability group with five other guys, and I get a late-night phone call because one of the guys gets picked up because he solicited a woman who turned out to be a cop. And he was alone because his wife, who was pregnant with their first child, was at the baby shower, and he went out trolling the streets. And so our group has an emergency session as soon as he's released from jail. And we go, dude, what on earth? And then it kind of rolls out. He's had a problem with sexual addiction and prostitutes for years. I'm like, what kind of a lousy? I, I literally came away and thought, that was a lousy accountability group. I, that is the most significant thing I could have ever known about the guy, and I didn't know that about him. And in order to have accountability, we have to be honest with each other. And we're going to get into that next. But the other piece of accountability, and this is why it's important for us as men, is our perception is our perception. So we're able to see things from a point of view, but it's our own eye socket. That's all we see it from. And so when we enter into a, a, like a real accountable relationship with another guy, what we're saying is, 
I, I'm, I'm going to put my neck out before you. And you're going to put your neck out before me. But you're, I, I need you to tell me if I'm seeing it right. I think that's what's hidden in David's question here. David says, if I've done something, then just kill me yourself. In other words, David's going, I, I, I think I've done everything I should do in an ethical and moral fashion, but I could be wrong. And that's a hard one for men to admit. But if you can get there, you, there's, you can go way far down the line in maturity and godliness if you can get to the point where you go, I could be wrong. By the way, for those of you who are married, if you do that in, a, in a, like a heated discussion with your wife, just go, let me just hit pause. I'm very sorry. I could be wrong here. What, what is your perception of this? Where am I? Yeah, exactly. I see some laughter there. I was like, you know, that, that can turn romantic sometimes. You know, that can, actually, that can actually cool a fight down and turn something different. It'll have a, you know. So there is, but we get determined to go, I, my point of view is right. Saul, Saul's out of line. And for David, he goes, Saul might not be out of line. Jonathan. Okay. So uh, let, me, let me move us along here so we don't eat up all of our time on that uh, quality, that attribute. Here's the next attribute. And I hinted at it. A brother is honest with his friend. And here's Jonathan's word now. Jen, Jonathan says to David, this is uh, verse 12. I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time, the day after tomorrow. So this is part of their plan. He's going to ask Saul some questions. If he is favorably disposed towards you, will I not send word to you and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father in the past. But show show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed, and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off, cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. And in this section, if you had like a paper Bible or you'd like to highlight things in your electronic Bible, in this section, a couple verses on either side of this included, Jonathan, Jonathan says the name of Yahweh or Lord. When you read Lord, all caps in the Old Testament, that's Yahweh. Whenever you, he says Lord more frequently in less space than anywhere else in the Bible, including the Psalms that use Lord a lot. So Jonathan, nine times in 13 verses, uses the, the term Lord. And he's invoking the Lord. Now, why is he doing that? I think he's doing that because he's establishing a foundation of honesty. Because our culture, our culture kind of says, you know, you can kind of fudge things as necessary to protect someone's feelings, to, to promote self. I don't know. How many of you guys are on LinkedIn? LinkedIn has got to be one of the worst social media sites on the planet Earth. I'm apparently linked in with some of the greatest people on the planet Earth. The profile, I'll get like friended or connected, and I'll look at the profile, and I'm like, wow, how can I not, how have I never heard of you? Because you have solved every problem on the face of the Earth. The nature of LinkedIn is kind of grossly braggadocious. One of my friends connected with me is a guy, he's actually the husband of, a, of one of my wife's friends, and so uh, this guy's kind of in the tech tech world, and this is about oh, a dozen years ago, and so I look, and it says uh, he, uh, he created solutions for Microsoft. 
and I, he'd always lived in Michigan, so I, I didn't know how he had ended up working for the Microsoft Corporation. So we were at a dinner party, and I just asked. I was like, hey, what's the Microsoft thing? And he goes, oh, you know, back when I was like an intern, uh, I was working at a, at a hotel, the, the lobby or the, uh, what do you call it, the convention side of the hotel would run seminars. And Microsoft would have these seminars on how to, like, use Excel and PowerPoint and the Microsoft suite. And, and so he goes, they came in to do the seminar. And I'm waiting for him to say, then he worked for them. They came in to do the seminar, and the laptop and the video projector wouldn't communicate. So I fixed it. I created a solution. And he was sort of smug in the fact that it was sort of true. How many of you think that was true, that he, would, that he created solutions for Microsoft? I wouldn't put that one. I thought to myself, I'd like to be in the interview round when someone in HR asked him, hey, you work for Microsoft, what do you do? I'd like to hear. I think that would terminate the interview like that. But we live in a culture where, like, it's just not a big deal. Now, that's out there, but I'm talking about in here is that in order for us to have what we need to have with another brothers, we have to be really straight with one another. We have to be honest with one another. That's attribute number three. Attribute number four is that a brother's committed to his friend. We see this in verses 16 and 17. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him. So they make a covenant. They make an oath to one another because he loved, and this is, a, this is a really cool verse, because he loved him as he loved himself. Now, because the modern culture we live in, some, no one even suggested this until like the last 20 or 30 years. Some people, because we live in such a hypersexual culture, is like, see, they were romantic. That's that not even close. In the old Hebrew, if you were a, a king of, say, a city-state, and another king came in and either beat you with his army or just intimidated you into submission. When you made an oath to the upper-handed king, the one that was now going to be your boss, you were going to be kind of an under-king under the superior king. When you did that, the under-king would say to the upper king, I love you as I love myself. That was part of the oath-giving, the oath-taking. So what Jonathan's doing, this is what's crazy. Jonathan is saying right here, David, you will be king someday, and I'm expressing my commitment to you as the leader. That's crazy. Again, go back to the scenario. You're working in a multi-staff environment. There's another guy that shows up. He outshines you, not by much actually, but he outshines you enough, and you say someday you're going to be my boss. I'll be here to support you. That is, a, that is a crazy level of commitment, but that is a mature level of commitment. And the expression there, that, that I love you as I love myself. I was thinking about what's like sort of the modern equivalent is men. You ever been in one of those circles, I know you have, where people go, all right, let's join hands. You know what I'm thinking, right? Just think about it for a minute. When you put your hand out, which position is your hand in? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Most of us are like, I'm dominant. That's almost always. Am I wrong? Just think about it. You're like, yeah, you know, 
when I, if you're married, when I hold hands with my wife, my hand goes, if she even does that, I'm like, oh, turn that hand over, babe. That's not how this relationship works, okay? No, no, no. I drive and I hold the hand this way. You hold the hand that way, you know. And so, so the only equivalent I can think of in just sort of our day-to-day is, you know, if you enter the circle, but you go palms up, you're like, I love you like I love myself. It's an, it's an, it's an expression, okay? And so here it is, and Jonathan, Jonathan and David have this commitment. They take an oath. There's, a, there's words exchanged. And I'm not saying that as men, when we're in a relationship, like a friendship with other guys, we need to have a DTR. Do you know what that is? I don't know if that's still a term. You younger guys have to tell me if it is. But when I was in college, if you had gone out for more than one date with the same girl, you had at some point a DTR, define the relationship. Usually she initiated because I was scared of commitment. So she would kind of go, what's the nature of our relationship? And that was usually a cue for me to never call her again. You know, that was, that was about the, that was really, we were at the tail end of the relationship. I kid you not. I was with, I, I, I once accidentally, because I was foolish and young and you threw around the love word a little too often. So I said to this girl, I'd only gone out with her a couple of times. I said, you know, I love you. And she said, what does that mean to you? Does that mean you want to marry me? I broke up with her right then and there. I'm like, whoa, this has gotten out of hand. That is, that, that's like, that is, that is, uh, I'm not, no, no, I'm not ready to be in that kind of a thing, you know. I'm not saying with another guy that you forged some connection with, you're like, hey, Bob, I just want to know, are we, are we like holding hands? You know, I, I, I don't mean like that, but, but I think as men, we can know I've got that guy's back and he's got my back. And I think, I think that's what all of us as men yearn for. I think we yearn for a relationship like that. Well, let me move on to the fifth attribute. Attribute number five, a brother sacrifices for his friend. So uh, the plan is uh, David and Jonathan have worked this out. There's an upcoming festival. It's sort of just like a harvest festival. It's not a religious festival. So David tells Jonathan, I'm going to go hide out in the fields, and then your dad's going to notice I'm not there, and being his son-in-law, I'm expected to sit at the head table near Saul, but I'm afraid if I go to the festival, he's just going to take it as an opportunity to kill me right then and there. So I'm not going to go to the festival. You go to the festival, and you make excuses why I'm not at the festival, and see how he responds. And if he just shrugs it off and says, oh, bummer. I wish, I wish David was here, maybe next time. Then I guess I've misread some things. But if he gets angry about this, then, then we'll know that my life's in jeopardy. And so this is the plan they roll out. And so here we have written down Saul's response to Jonathan. Is he going to be upset that David's missing? Is he going to be fine with David's uh, absence. And here we are in verse 30. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. You can kind of read into that what he's getting at. Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse? He doesn't even call him David anymore. He refers to him by his dad's uh, name. Son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother who bore you. You're bringing shame upon yourself. You're bringing shame upon your mother who evidently, I mean, the funny part is Jonathan, you brought shame upon your mother, who he just referred to as a perverse and rebellious woman. So Saul's a little unhinged. He's not a great leader. 
as long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. So now Saul's making it sound noble. I've got to wipe David out for you. I'm going to do this as a service to you. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. And then Jonathan says, why should he be put to death? What's he done? He asks his father. But Saul hurls a spear at Jonathan to kill Jonathan. So, I mean, just think of the interchange here. Just think of the rage. Think about the angry interactions where Saul has gotten himself so worked up, he's insulted his own son in a highly inconsistent manner. He's just throwing around barbs and insults. And then he says, but I'm doing it for you. And then he tries to kill the guy he's doing it for. Makes no sense. And if you try to find sense in it, you're going to be troubled. There is no sense Saul really, truly is a mess here. And so Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger. On the second day of the feast, he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. And so it says a few verses later in verse 41, David got uh, up from the, the, now he goes out, he finds David in hiding. He tells David this deal. He says, David, you were right. I'm really sorry. Dad is trying to kill you. You do have to go into hiding. And David got up from the south side of the stone. This is where he's been hiding. He bowed, he bowed down before Jonathan three times. This is the only time in quick succession we see this in the Old Testament, someone bowing down three times. This is a serious act of submission to Jonathan with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together. But, but it says David wept the most. And, and this, is, this shows some sacrifice one brother gives for another brother. In fact, it shows mutual sacrifice. For Jonathan, of course... His relationship with his dad will never be good again. It's always going to have significant unhealth from that point on. He's not going to be trusted by his dad, and he knows it. And also, uh, he's, he's, he knows, as long, he does know, as long as David lives, he isn't going to be king. He's willing to sacrifice his career, his relationship with his dad, perhaps his standing among the other warriors. This is a warrior tribal group of people. Don't picture like... The English monarchs who are primarily focused on hats and little dogs and things. This is a warrior class. You stayed in power because you could kill a lot of other people. And so you think about what it takes to stay at the, the top of the pecking order of amongst a bunch of warriors. Jonathan's status has been downgraded because he doesn't have the chutzpah to go kill his main rival. That would have that shone brightly in the eyes of some of the leaders in Israel at that time. He's sacrificing all that. But David's sacrificing too. He's sacrificing friends. He's sacrificing his own. He's at least putting his future on hold. This, remember, this is the guy who slayed the giant. This is the guy that's got a, like a pop song named after him. So David could just go and kill Saul. In fact, if this was an action movie, that's what he'd be do. That's what he would do. Oh, Saul wants to kill me? Great. Bring him out. You know, we've seen that Western, right? Every Western ends the same way. Bad guy, good guy. And what happens? Dead bad guy at the end, right? That's how it works. That's how every Western's supposed to work. If it doesn't work that way, it's a terrible Western. It'll get an Oscar and we'll hate it. But it's a bad Western. We all know that. Okay, so he's sacrificed. Now, most of us aren't going to have to like uh, risk life and limb. Most of us, when it comes to sacrifice, aren't going to have to betray our father or give up a throne, Okay. That would be an extreme. I don't think any of us in this room are going to do that. But when it comes to sacrificing to have a brother, we're going to have to sacrifice time. It's going to take time. 
time spent with that guy. Some of us is sacrificing sleep. I know some of you, I commend you, some of you guys are not morning guys. You're like, 6.45 sounds horrible, but you're here because you go, I, I, need, uh, I need some brothers in my life. This is important to me. You're going to have to sacrifice some sleep. might have to sacrifice some opinions. You might go, hey, this guy and I are good friends, but we are way on the other side of the political aisle. So we're going to barely ever talk about that stuff because his friendship with it, to me, is worth more than winning an argument about who should be in the White House or in charge of Congress or what, what all that should be about. And so a brother sacrifices for another brother. Last attribute we're going to explore, a brother encourages the faith of his friend. This, is, this, is, this happens sometime later. Uh, David has now like a ragtag. He's gone into hiding. And as he's gone into hiding, he's, just, he's one of these magnetic people. And this is because the Lord's anointing is upon him. So people can detect this, and they're like, I want to be around that guy. And when they go and join his forces, they're like on the run constantly. We're not talking about a big nation here. He's just wandering the countryside with a bunch of guys. And these are all warrior guys. Not one guy in there is really a philosopher. These are all guys that, you know, they, they, you feel safe around this crew of guys. And it says that um, while, while they're um, kind of hiding out, Saul goes after, Saul's going after David. But for some reason, Saul can never find David. And Jonathan finds him easy peasy. I love this. So it says, while David was at Horus in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David. I just love the fact that Jonathan knew where David was. And Saul was, he, was, he had to be around Saul. So I was like, where is this guy? And David's like, ah. Jonathan's like, I don't know. Hey, I got to run. Uh, I'll be back, you know. <laughs> so, but it says, and Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horus. And get this, just take a moment here. And it said, and helped him find strength in God. Just sit on that phrase for a bit. Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horsh and helped him find strength in God. Then he gives him some other encouragement, like, don't be afraid. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel. I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. And David went, uh, Jonathan went home, and David remained at Horish. And when Jonathan went home, he didn't, he didn't tell his dad, oh, I was just with Jonathan. Now, we can do this. This is one of the coolest things one guy can do for another guy. We can encourage the faith of each other. This doesn't, it, it's not hard. We, all we have to do is just, remind each other of what we're striving for it can be simple questions we're, we're just talking shooting the breeze about something maybe sharing a personal challenge and the question is what do you think would honor god in that in, in the however that decision the outcome of that decision what do you think would be the most honoring thing you could do that would honor god uh, not the most expedient our culture is like primarily preoccupied. Can you make more money? Can you, can you rise through the ranks? Can you, you know, there, there's all these kind of world-focused things. But as men, how can we, how can we honor God? That's a question any guy can ask another guy. One of my friends, this goes back almost 20 years ago, Doug and I, we were in a small group together. And, and Doug said, you know, I've never read through the Bible like in one, like through the year or through two years or never. I just there's parts of the Bible I have never read before, 
And I said, you know, there's this thing called the one-year Bible. They actually, like, print it. I think we sell it in our bookstore. You can get it on Amazon. You can actually get it free online. It's just oneyearbible.org or something like that. And so, so, uh, so I told Doug about it. I said, you know what? Uh, we were near a Christian bookstore. They had them back then. And so we, uh, we, there, we got the only one in town, I think, now. But we, we, uh, we went down to this Christian bookstore together, and he bought one. I said, you know what? I'll buy one, too. Hey, this sounds like a good thing for me to do as well. And so Doug started the one-year Bible. That year, I started the one-year Bible. I think that was 18 years ago. Not one year's gone by where I haven't gone through the Bible, not because I'm a pastor. I don't do that in my office because that, for me, would be cheating. You can't probably do it in your offices or your place of work, and I don't do it. I, I study the Word for stuff like this at work, but I do that at home in the quietness over a cup of coffee in the morning before anybody's up. That's when I do it. But anyhow, Doug has been doing it so long, he and I uh, just chatted not too long ago, and he says, you know, I think of, when, when I think of September, I think of Isaiah, because when we read Isaiah, it's in the month of September. And when I think of October, I think of Jeremiah the prophet, because we start reading Jeremiah through the month of October. He goes, so when like a pastor will quote a section, like if he quotes something in a sermon out of Jeremiah, he goes, I'm thinking Halloween, you know. It's, it, it is so embedded in his mind because of the pattern of that Bible reading. I share that as an illustration. I, I, you don't have to be a pastor to go, hey, why don't we try, you know, encouraging each other reading the Bible? You don't have to have a divinity degree. You don't have to be an expert on anything. You, you could just go, I encourage you to do this. That's something we can do. We can, as brothers, spiritually encourage one another. It'd be very helpful. All right, these are the six attributes, and I'm not going to take up any more of our time. I want us to have some discussion time. And then, as you know, rule is 745. I call it, and you can still hang around, but you'll be dismissed at 745. All right? Go to your tables, and there's some discussion questions for you. Thanks.